I want to see a book that that uh, refactors spaghetti into ravioli. <laughs> which, which is the appropriate posture for object-oriented code? <laughs> and welcome to the 33rd episode of Ruby Rogues. This week on our panel, we have uh, a special guest rogue, uh, Russ Olson. Hey, Chuck. Um, so Russ wrote the book that we're reviewing this week, which is Eloquent Ruby. Russ, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll introduce the rest of the panel. Okay, well, I, um, I'm a programmer. Um, I've been doing it for... Uh, longer than I really care to admit. One of the things that I, I like to tell people is that Lisp is one of my favorite programming languages because it's the only one in current use that's actually older than I am. Um, but uh, I, I, I started out life as a mechanical engineer, got interested in programming just because that seemed to be an easier way to solve mechanical engineering problems. And Somewhere along the lines, I, I kind of wasn't a mechanical engineer anymore, and I, so I've been programming since, you know, uh, back in the days when Fortran was, was popular, um, segued into the whole Java world, ended up doing Ruby when I got um, frustrated with Java, and started writing about it a few years ago. So, uh, as you say, I'm the author of today's book, Eloquent Ruby, and before that, I wrote Design Patterns in Ruby. All right. Well, it's it's great to have you. Um, we also have on our panel Avdi Grimm. Hello again. Uh, James Edward Gray. Hey, everybody. I just want you guys to know I'm on vacation as of this Friday, so mentally I'm pretty much already there, and if I contribute anything meaningful to this conversation today, it'll be a miracle. Thanks for checking out. Uh, Josh Susser. Yeah, hey, good morning, and uh, I just want to let you all know that James has six pages of printed notes that he's going to be contributing today. That's right, he wrote his own book on Eloquent Ruby. Yes. <laughs> and I'm Charles Maxwood from TeachMeToCode.com. Two things that I want to point out. First, it's my birthday today. Wow. And, uh, Happy birthday to you. Birthday, Yeah, I'm getting old. I'm, what, 32 now? Um, and then... Ooh, a p- power of two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think you're all older than I am. Anyway, um, the other thing is, is I'm looking for subcontractors. So, if you if you want to do some moonlighting or uh, freelancing or whatever, uh, and, and need a few, need to fill a few hours, let me know. All right, let's get into this and uh, talk about Eloquent Ruby. Um, since James has copious notes, we'll we'll let him get some of his important stuff out of the way. <laughs> nice. I should, <laughs> I, I should not talk about my note taking. Um, uh, okay, I'll start off off-topic, since this is my vacation week. Um, Russ mentioned he also wrote uh, Design Patterns in Ruby, and I've read that one, too, uh, quite a while ago. So, um, And I love that book. Uh, it's a great, oh, thank you. It's a great book. Um, yeah, I got, it, I got it sitting right here on my shelf. Yeah. I've read it. It's good. Yeah. It is good. One of the things I love about that book is... Um, and it, uh, Russ goes through the, uh, you know, the traditional design patterns, uh, the ones that apply to Ruby and basically shows the differences in, you know, how, the, how we normally think of the pattern and how it is in Ruby. And then he also goes and shows, uh, uh, you know, some patterns that are kind of Ruby-ish, just, you know, uh, from Ruby itself. So I just thought I'd ask, uh, you know, uh, 
what made you what made you want to write that book, Russ? I, I that that book came out of frustration. Um, I I had um, at, at right before I had written Design Patterns in Ruby, I worked on this really large Java application, and it was uh, designed by some people who were just absolutely design pattern crazy. So there's there's various places in the book where I say something like, you know, you can make a factory that creates an observer that calls back into the, I don't know, name another random pattern that calls another factory that does this, that does that. And I, you know, and it doesn't make any sense. You know, you, you want to sort of be restrained in this stuff. And a lot of those sequences of the crazy, you know, this pattern calls that pattern calls this pattern calls that pattern actually came straight from that system I had worked on. And the frustration was, um, uh, sort of two things. I think I think what people do with patterns is they tend to say all of my problems must be solvable by these uh, however many patterns were invented in 1994, and also that um, you know if I that well that every every problem should be soluble by by some combination of those patterns, and I can't think of anything new. Like I can't solve the problem in a different way. So. You know, the, the original design patterns book was was sort of like, here's an approach to problem solving, and here's some patterns that we have found. And um, unfortunately, we've sort of taken those things and crystallized them so that we're, it's like back to the future. We're back in 1994 every time we go and, and code, or at least that's the way some people do it. And so I really wanted to say, yeah, it's a, the, the patterns thing is a great idea when applied sort of with restraint, with, with common sense, and also that we've moved on since 1994. We've discovered some new things. We're using different languages, so we shouldn't be doing things exactly the way we were doing them in 1994. And I tried, so it sort of came out of frustration, and I tried to turn that frustration into something positive, and, and that was the book. I was in junior high school in 1994, so I seriously hope that we've moved on. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's a lifetime in in technology. Chuck, was that when you were smoking in the bathroom or setting the gym on fire? <laughs> actually, funny story. Uh, somebody actually did set the gym on fire when I was in like fifth grade. Anyway, uh, <laughs> but you've denied it, right? Yeah, I deny they, everything. They, they can't prove it. <laughs> actually, they found the girl that did it. She lit a uh, garbage can on fire. But we're getting off topic, anyway. Um, well, well, Speaking of off topic, since some, somebody plugged their company, I, I, I should add in my bio that I currently work for for Relevance, and we are looking for Rails programmers. And my my friends back at the company will kill me if I don't say that. Yeah, how do they find out, or how, how do they uh, thinkrelevance dot com? Okay, good deal. So, are you implying that all the all your friends back there listen to the podcast? Uh, probably one or two will, you know, just because I'm on it. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're ordinarily pretty marginal. <laughs> yeah, and there there are a few other guys on that podcast, but we're listening for Russ. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> right. So, so getting into the book, uh, there were a couple of things that I wanted to jump in and talk about. Um, one of the first things was was that there was a control structure that I had never actually seen or used before in Ruby, and that is the until. Oh, right. Sure. I didn't realize that that was there, and I was feeling kind of, this is basic to the language. How did I miss this? But 
you know, it, it, it makes sense, you know, just like we have unless, you know, to have a have an until. Yeah, I, 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 I think off. that. I, I think what you're saying there is sort of – I think it's a common problem. I think when people come to a new programming language, you come with a, you know, with a set of expectations and the experience you have from, from your last programming language or the one before that. And it's very, very easy to pick up things that are similar like, oh, there's a while loop in Java. And if I'm coming from, from Java, I see the while loop in Ruby and I really don't have to think about it unless or until or whatever – you know, not so common. So, so you will frequently see people who will uh, ignore things like that in Ruby just because they weren't in the old language. And it's not that they've consciously done it. It's that they just sort of miss it because it's a little harder to understand. Yeah. I'm going to harken back to our, uh, our episode last week and just kind of say that I don't really see myself using it unless, um, unless it's, I'm doing like a, a double negative or something where I need to, you know, it, it clears things up because it's not a while, not, 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 not. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to remember which language it was, but I remember that programming is something where they had a while loop and an until loop. And the difference was one tested at the beginning of the loop and the other at the end. It was just, or maybe, that would be horrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, that, um, yeah. Mm. Yep. Yep. I, I can remember doing that. Sure. I, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I um, I read a lot of Ruby books and know a lot of Ruby syntax, including some pretty obscure things I wish I could unlearn, like how if you have two strings side by side, then those are automatically concatenated. Um, oh, yeah. But um, I, I know a lot of scary Ruby syntax, but this book taught me a piece of syntax I did not know. Um, and that's the uh, how you can uh, suppress line endings in the double quoted string if you backslash them at the end right before you press return oh, yeah. it suppresses that I didn't know that so mm-hmm. yeah. it, it really is a it, I, I think just you know with what Chuck's saying and what I'm saying it's a it's impressive the scope of how much you cover in this book so, you know? so, so, so I, I have a question related to that and that's that's um, who is your intended audience for the books and and, and let me um let me just uh, unpack that a little and the so as you know as as uh, chuck and and james have have mentioned there there's a lot of really detailed uh often advanced knowledge about uh ruby in the book but the tone of the book and the and the way that it um addresses the various issues makes it feel very much like a beginner book um and yet at the same time there is almost no discussion of the object-oriented basics that make the language comprehensible yeah. Um, so, well, I, I think the two books have have similar but slightly different audiences. Um, uh, so, so, take take Eloquent Ruby. The the person that I was thinking of when I was writing Eloquent Ruby was the sort of you know you sort of always kind of write for yourself in a sense. And I came to Ruby with you know an, a, a background in Java and C++ and Python. And so the the object-oriented sorts of things were not a problem for me. Um, but was what was a problem were, um, you know, just kind of the, the writing idiomatic Ruby and, and understanding the flexibility of Ruby and, and that kind of thing. So I wrote Eloquent Ruby the, is 
is aimed at being sort of your second Ruby book is really what I was thinking. If you have some background in object-oriented programming and maybe you're just picking up the language, however, you could might turn the eloquent Ruby because you already sort of mastered the very basics of Ruby. Or um, you're, you're, um, you've read, uh, I don't know, Peter Cooper's book or something like that, and, and you know the basics of Ruby and you understand the, the the general ideas of object-oriented programming, and now you want to know how to do it in Ruby. Um, so that that's kind of the beginning of the book. Um, and, and, you know, people say about both these books that, that they go into some advanced things. Um, and I, I, I'm really not so sure. I'm not so sure I ever, in either one of these books, I talk about terribly advanced things. S- simply because, like, I, I sort of object, for example... Uh, you know, everyone always sort of says, oh, well, there's metaprogramming. You're, you're talking about metaprogramming. That's a very advanced idea. It's only a very advanced idea if you convince yourself it's an advanced idea. I think, I think one of the things, one of the mistakes that we make is, you know, kind of as an industry or, or a profession trying to teach new people um, things like metaprogramming is the first thing we do about it is we scare the daylights out of them. Right. We say, oh, now we're going to learn metaprogramming and it's different than that other stuff. And you should be very frightened of this because it's hard. Well, really? No, not really. It's different than than what you can do in a lot of lot of, uh, you know, kind of popular languages, things like Java. But it's really not that much harder. Uh, you know, it, yes, you have to understand object oriented programming. Yes. In order to get the metaprogramming, you have to understand something about how Ruby's objects go together, but I don't think metaprogramming is really any more complicated than figuring out, I don't know, uh, you know, something uh, interesting in a web application, uh, you know, uh, redirecting people back and forth so you can get authenticated is, is an interesting and, and not really complicated, but, but significant thing and i don't really see metaprogramming for example as anything really intrinsically more complicated than that we just most of us have come from backgrounds where you don't do metaprogramming so it seems scary and complicated to us i think if you take a brand new person who's learning ruby as their first programming language it's not that complicated so that's why i have the cheerful this is not all that hard tone because i believe with all my heart that none of this stuff is very hard. Yeah, I think we come to it a lot in kind of the order that we pick it up. And so as we as we advance through the Ruby uh, syntax and the Ruby, uh, the, the things that are available to us in, as a toolkit in Ruby, you know, we kind of deem, well, the first things that we picked up were the basic syntax and conditionals and how to do all the control structure. So that's basic stuff. And then we move into, okay, so here's how we do some of the object-oriented stuff, and here's how here's how Ruby thinks about its object model. And so as you pick that up, that's the next step kind of that people move through. So that's the intermediate stuff. And then they start playing with metaprogramming and stuff. So obviously, since I advanced through everything else, that's the advanced stuff. Yes, but- <laughs> yes. So I think that there's a different way of looking at beginner versus advanced. and um, Paycheck size? Yeah, well, there's that. <laughs> Uh, there, there was a Zen master, Suzuki, who said, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. Um, the, I, was, I was like that, um, especially when I was trying to learn how to play Go. Uh, the, the, um, so the, the book is great in that it, it shows a lot of stuff and how to do it, but it also dives into 
when you don't want to do it. And I think that that's, that's a good indication that you're getting into advanced subject matter when you start telling people how to avoid running into problems. And I, I really liked that every chapter was like, you know, watching out for trouble and, you know, you know here's how to avoid shooting yourself in the foot using this. Yeah, that, that, uh, if, if you ever think about if you come to a new project or, or something and there's there's people who have been working on the project for a long time and so you're the new guy on the project and maybe you're pairing with someone else and you know a lot of the conversation goes like oh yeah well we can do this that and the other thing and the experienced guy or woman says yeah don't do that uh, you, you know and and I think that's a lot of learning uh, how to really use something is to know where not to go. Um, and uh, I think it's unfortunate sometimes that that lots of technical books or screencasts or stuff, they tell you all about what you could do, but they don't they tend to shy away from the the yeah, don't do that kind of areas. And so I kind of wanted to get that up front. Um, it, it also came uh, the design patterns at Ruby is also full of. Because you see this all the time in, in, in people using design patterns is they, they misuse them. And so design patterns in Ruby, every chapter um, about a design pattern ends with how not to use this, when not to use it. And I, I, I like that as a, as a, as a, a check on the, you know, you explain something, you get all enthusiastic about it and you want to be positive and you want to make sure that the person sees the value in this thing. And then you want to say, yeah, it's a really sharp knife. Don't take your arm off. Yeah, I think I, I like where uh, Russ is going with this and that, you know, it, a lot of things is like how we explain things to programmers seems to be about 90% of the problem. I mean, you know, it, everybody loves to throw around complicated computer science terms. So we would say, you know, blocks and Ruby are closures, you know, and that yes. kind of panics people, you know, oh, my God, closures, what's that, you know? But then when you explain to it, okay, in Ruby, we don't have for loops. We replace everything with iterators. And just like in your for loop, you'd want to be able to use those same variables in the middle of the loop that you had outside of the loop, you know. So if Ruby yeah. didn't remember that scope, you'd be mad about it, you know. I, I think one of, the, one of the mistakes we make when we try and explain things is we tend to lead with the terminology, Um you know, the, the the analogy I like is if you were, you know, think of one of those big giant sh sailing ships from like the 1800s or something or 1900s, you know, with a million sails. And you started talking about all the different ropes. You know, those ships were just completely full of ropes. And if you start talking about all the different ropes, well, they had a name for every single one of those ropes. And so if you said, oh, yeah, you go on the ship and there's there's the this rope and the that rope and the this rope and the that rope. That doesn't really tell the person anything. But if you say, yeah, there's ropes that hold the sails up, there's ropes that hold the masts up, there's an anchor rope that, you know, keeps the ship from moving, that makes sense. And then you can tag the names on, right? Oh, the ones that hold the sails up or whatever they're called. Um, we tend to lead with the terminology. You know, advanced Ruby is closures and blocks and hooks and, you know, no, just sort of tell us what what the language can do and then we'll hang the names on it later. I don't think they called them ropes. Probably not. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I was trying to think of something that I know nothing about. Oh, okay. Yeah. Isn't that where the, isn't that where the phrase know the ropes comes from, though? I don't know. Probably. That's a good question. Knowing the ropes? I don't know. All right. I will give you my favorite quote in the book. I thought we could uh, uh, talk about that if uh, maybe Russ could tell us why he wrote it this way. 
Uh, my favorite quote is, writing clear code is a battle of inches. Yeah, well, I wrote it that way because it is. Uh, you, you know, you can write code and make it work, and it can be the ugliest code and the most confusing code, but it works. And, you know, we're we're trying to make code work. And so from one point of view, if you make the code work, if you write a line of code and it, and it actually um, works, aren't you done at that point? And the answer is no. Because you're trying to make the code talk to the people. You're trying to make the code actually work so it's talking to the computer. You're trying to make the code as expressive as you possibly can. You're trying to make it concise. So you need to fight every step of the way because, you know, you're not going to have one line of code. You're going to have probably hundreds or thousands or maybe even tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of lines of code. So one extra token, one little bit of complexity you know, that in each line of code is going to add up to something massive in the end. So you get you need to fight every inch of the way to make your code clear, to make it as best you can. And I, th I think that line comes from the, you know, the section where I'm talking about like if and unless. And, you know, why do you care if not or unless? And it's because unless in a lot of a lot of circumstances says it better. And so you gain that, you know, inch or half an inch and it's worth it. Yeah, I really like that, too, because I think a lot of times we <clears throat> we we as Rubyists and as TDD people, we get in and we're like red, green, refactor, red, green, refactor. And we, we don't look at those little inches. We we tend to look at the overall. OK, how can I make this now big refactor on this feature that I just added in so that it's. You know, the whole thing is pretty and elegant and whatever, rather than looking, you know, at the code and saying, well, this this small section isn't clear. And so you clear that up, you gain a little bit of ground on the clarity of your code. And uh, a lot of times that that makes the difference more than, you know, the major rearranging of code that you might be tempted to do. Right, right. It's the as a as a world class misspeller. Um, I, I sort of fight this battle when I write English is that, sure, I could write something and it could be full of, full of words that are misspelled and it would be absolutely clear. And, you know, if, if you know, you could follow my directions if I'm writing some directions. But no, I need I need to go back and fix the misspellings because that will make it, you know, one inch or one foot clearer. Millimeters and meters if, if for your my European friends. <laughs> okay. so, so so this leads into a into a question that I have, and that's that uh, you know, the 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 book is a is you know a great collection of information about how to use Ruby and you know lots of, of syntax and you know, APIs and things like that. But it's also um, it can it, either implicitly or explicitly or somewhere in between um, a, a treatise on style and. You know, how you want to be writing your your Ruby programs and what your code should look like, and you've even addressed them um, in a number of places in the book. So I'm so I'm curious, how, like, did you like sit down and explicitly think about what kind of coding style you wanted to present, and you know, what were the kind of decisions that went into that? Because I I, I think that a lot of the style in the book that's presented is good, but I I obviously uh, you know wouldn't be a, a you know, senior programmer. If I didn't have quibbles about you know a bunch of stuff that you did, <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, no, that, I think that's fair. Um, I, I, I tried. Um, you know, I I have my own style um, that I like, but what I tried to do 
was for for the particular style that I kind of advocate in the book, I tried and and I think maybe succeeded with one kind of spectacular failure. Um, what I did was I spent a lot of time looking at the library code that comes with Ruby, and I spent time looking at Rails and various other um, of the more popular uh, gems that you could uh, you, you would find. And I looked at the code that they were actually using and said, okay, if this is what people are actually doing, if this is what the authors of Rails are doing, if this is what the authors of the standard library, Ruby standard library are doing, if this is what, I can't remember some of the other ones that I used, then this is kind, more or less the standard Ruby style. And remarkably enough, it's pretty uniform. Um, it's uh, there, There's not a lot of places where I had to scratch my head and say, um, oh, gee, you know, half of it's done this way and half of it's done that way. You know, what, what am I going to advocate? Um, the, the, the spectacular place where I think I went off the rails um, without even knowing it is I tend to leave a lot of white space around in my code, particularly after parentheses. And after the book was published, people kind of started asking me about that. And I went back and looked at um, you know my my example code and discovered that no, that's just me. That that most Ruby people do not leave that white space. Um, so that's the kind of thing. I mean, there's there's style. There's your own personal style, and sometimes it's so personal that that you don't even realize that that you're doing it, um, or you don't see, you know, the the fact that you're different from everyone else. But sure, there's there's variations in the style and. Um, that's fine. Um, I, I think Ruby is remarkable. I, I actually had this conversation uh, with uh, s someone was asking me about the book who had a Java background, and they were asking me about the style guidelines in the book, particularly the two-space indentation and where the braces and the do's and things like that go. And he was his his the point of view that he went into it with was, well, that's just you, right? I mean, obviously people will do it. And I'm like, no, mostly people, you know, Ruby people, Ruby programmers will style it this way. Mostly Ruby programmers do indeed use two spaces to indent. Mostly they put the braces here and the do's here. And he really couldn't believe it because it, you know, Java style tends to be, uh, you know, if you look at two different Java, well, there, put it the other way, there are several popular and very different ways to format Java code, and there really isn't the kind of agreement that we have in in Ruby, even though the Ruby agreement is is relatively loose. Yeah, so I, I have a question. It's more for uh, Josh and uh, and any uh, any other quibbles and bits that. Uh, Avdi can push into his brain. But, uh, did, did you just say quibbles and bits? I did. <laughs> are you are you saying I'm being catty? Uh, I don't know about that. But anyway, I'm, I'm a little bit curious because you said that there were some quibbles about some of the things that were in the book, and I, I'm wondering if you can think of any off the top of your head. Oh, sure. Um, I don't have six pages of notes, but I have a couple note cards. I do. Um, so okay. So, so I'll, I'll try one, and then I'll let James do five. Um, so... Uh, the one of the things that uh, I've I've actually blogged about it um, is um, using explicit return statements in Ruby, and I, and I I find that um, while that can make 
code more readable in the small. Like if you're looking at a particular line, you have an understanding that that value on that line is intended to be returned out of the method. I find that in the large, that kind of coding style leads to um, code that's much harder to refactor and move around. And so you're saying that, that you would use the explicit return? No, I would never use the explicit return. Okay. And and I found that there was a, a fair number of code examples in the book that used the explicit return and had and had like multiple exit points from functions or methods, and uh, and and like I, it just seemed like it was an odd mishmash of of uh, like making the control flow less clear in in several of the examples, and and I think that that's what happens in typical coding style. You know, if you're running big programs, is that you have, a, you know, when you have a bunch of explicit returns, various places that, um, it, 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 it so okay. The, let me see. There was like one particular example that I saw. Um, let me see. I think I have it bookmarked. Um, uh, oh, it was in class document reader. <laughs> so um, there, it's it was uh, in the document class. So. Yes, it was in the document <laughs> class, just like everything else. <laughs> there, so there was a method. Uh, uh, let's see, it's on page 346 on my, oh, but those on the iPad. So it's like self.readPath, and then you do reader equals reader for path, and then return nil unless reader, and then the next line was reader.path, or reader.readPath. So the, this is going to sound horrible on the podcast because people can't read along with what I'm doing. Um, so I, I would have just done that as like reader, ampersand, ampersand, reader.readPath. Or reader dot read path if reader something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that would work well. I mean, there, there's a lot of ways to do that that uh, I think capture the concept of what the code is trying to express better. And the so is just like uh, and, and I saw these like returns all over the place that were then followed by immediately by something that did a return. So, so like the last two lines of the method is an explicit return with a condition, and then the next line is an implicit return. Right. So right. I just, I just, I found that style a little jarring. And Josh, I, I mostly agree with what you're saying there, but I, I do have a question for you. Do you use explicit returns in guard statements at the beginning of a method? Because I will do that. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm okay with that I th because those those things are typically not part of what you're refactoring, and if you and if you are refactoring a method, then it's real obvious that they're up there at the top. Yeah, I was going to say I'm I'm going to post a guard clause outside your door, Josh. <laughs> you can only return nil. <laughs> so just to clarify, there what what Josh is saying is is that when you put explicit returns like in the middle of a method or, you know, before you're about to return and you can resolve it as part of the return, then, then that, that makes confusing and, and difficult for refactoring and stuff. But one of the things that I do like is if I'm going to make some conditions before I allow myself to go into this method, like you've got to give me this or there's nothing I can do, then I'm fine with putting return unless, you know, and whatever that condition is right at the top of the method, because it, it shows you, you know, if we don't make it this far, then we're just done. You know? Now, aren't explicit returns what you do at Walmart after Christmas? <laughs> so, so no, I, no, I think those are at the end of a long queue. Yeah, right. <laughs> they're about as pleasant. Is that what I'm hearing? Very yeah. Nice. See, I, I, I guess, um, well, well, there, 
Certainly there's these. I I think this is certainly in the gray area where people where Ruby people do not necessarily see things the same way. Um, I would say I I know that that I, you know, I have a hard time convincing many people that explicit returns are bad. Right. Oh, but just to be clear, Josh is right. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I would would say this. I would say that one of the things that that makes me a little freer with with the returns um, than than I might ordinarily be, and I think I actually say it somewhere in the book, is that if you're doing it right, you're writing these really, really short methods. Okay, you're not writing 60 line methods. You're not writing 45 line methods. Ideally, sometimes you get in a bad place and and you end up doing that. But ideally, you are writing, you know, methods that you can take in with one sweep of the eye. And if you do that, at least in my opinion, it matters much less if you have explicit returns, if you have implicit returns, because you can see the whole method and you can see what it's doing very rapidly. Okay. And I think, I think while we might differ about whether explicit returns are good or bad, I think the idea of these short sort of pointed methods that do one thing is something that, that Rubius in general are, are really happy about and pretty much agree on. Um, not to put words in anybody's mouth, <laughs> um, but that that's different from uh, you, you know. Recently, in you know a year or so ago, I was working with some folks who had come over from the Java world, and so they were picking up Ruby. Um, you know, had gone to Ruby training and and were sort of slowly picking it up and writing writing Rails apps, and they really would think nothing of writing a seventy five line method, and you know, sort of sit down with them and say, "This is you know not really a good idea. We need to break this up." And 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 it's not that they were by any means stupid or anything like that. It's just that there's a different programming culture there that says that, you know, a method that goes on for two pages is just fine versus I think the the Ruby community has pretty much said, you know, no, there's we, we might disagree on what the limit is, but there certainly is a limit and it certainly is smaller than 75 lines. Yeah, that's a good point. Oh, I'll mention one more. I, I it, It's ironic because uh, in your uh, discussion of, you know, uh, all Rubyists, you know, generally agree on, uh, uh, you know, braces, do end and stuff like that. I actually right. use a different rule for braces and do end than the one you give in the book. So that's kind of uh, interesting. Do you use the Wyrick rule? Yep, I use the Wyrick rule, right. So uh, for those who don't know, the one uh, Russ gives in the book is um, uh, a line. So if, if it's a single line uh, block, uh, then we do braces, uh, and if it's a multi-line block, we do do end. Um, and uh, the rule that I use uh, for blocks is uh, if I care about the return value of the block, then it's braces. And if I'm running the block just for side effects, procedural code, say writing a file, something like that, um, then I use do end. Now, I do, if I use do end, I don't put it on one line, even if it fits on one line. I'll go ahead and break that on multiple lines. So I do also, you know, use Russ's rule, sort of. But um, 
but the braces, if that if that turns into multiple lines, it's fine by me. But if, if I'm interested in the uh, return value, so for example, something like a map or a select, I would always do with braces because the return value of the block is significant. I find that gives me a little more information at a glance. Yeah, I didn't actually know about the wire rule when I wrote the book. <laughs> That's my excuse. Um, I, I, I think it actually, I, I certainly uh, from my very limited point of view, it seemed like that people started talking about that just as the book went to press. And, you know, I'm not sure I know how, how I feel about it. Um, it certainly wasn't reflected in in the code that I was looking at because um, I probably would have noticed that. I hope I would have noticed that. Um, you know, things like the, the, uh, 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 you know, the library that came with Ruby or Rails and things like that. Um, at least I didn't notice it. I, I think that's indicative, though, of, of the way that our community works is that uh, there are always people advancing the craft. And so, I mean, you're, you're never going to get everything in there exactly the way that people think about it. Because yes. by, by the time you're publishing it, you know, somebody's come up with something like this and you know, we just do the best we can. And I, yeah. I really feel for the people who are writing Rails books because that, that changes like every, I yeah. don't know how often. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's the contrast with the, we've got, you know, design patterns from 1994 and they're frozen and they're never going to change and we're always going to use them. I think I think the fact that we're still sort of experimenting and trying new things out is is a really healthy sign, even if it makes my life as an author harder. So I have a question. Um, this is, as you mentioned, this is uh, very much a book about idiomatic Ruby. And I really have to compliment you on on writing uh, a book that is very, uh, very non-objectionable, uh, <laughs> which, which doesn't I, – I, 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 which I, I realize sounds like 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 da like damning with faint praise, but but what I mean by that is yeah, we didn't hate it. We didn't um, hate it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean what I mean, you know, idiom idiom is is kind of a religious topic, and and you know, and I was really surprised that I read like four hundred pages on idiom, and you know, was very rarely, if ever, like yelling at the page, uh, and I think that's that's an amazing feat. My question is is related to getting idioms out uh, to the larger commu community. I mean, I think any of us who have written code for a, a good deal of time have wanted to write something like this, and then you, you know the, the captured idioms, and then jam it down our team members' throats, and and the you know the the frustration I think is is the people that we most wish would sort of get on board with some of these idioms or maybe the people that are least likely to take a 400-page book and read it through and change their ways. Um, what, what, do you, what are your thoughts on propagating these kinds of uh, you know, good, generally agreed to be good idioms in an organization in a way that doesn't piss people off too much and doesn't you know get management thinking that you're only interested in in making the code beautiful and not and not in getting features out there you know how do we how do we gently uh promulgate this stuff in our organizations and in the larger community um well um the first thing we have to do is stop pissing people off i think um and and 
by that, I mean, I think it's really easy to get. I, I mean, this coding stuff is hard, right? Um, making programs work is not easy. And so if you're spending eight, 10 hours a day just trying to make the darn stuff work, and then you hit a point where um, you find some code that's maybe functional, but you know, is is Java in Ruby or C plus plus in Ruby or C sharp in Ruby. It's really easy to get frustrated because this stuff is hard enough as it is. And, I, but I think I think there's a, a I, I think going at it with frustration is absolutely the wrong. You know, kind of kind of being frustrated and then and then letting yourself let, giving in to that. Is is absolutely the wrong thing, and I think one of the one of the reasons that that it I don't think frustrates me anymore is the realization. You see, I've spent a lot of my time teaching Java people Ruby, okay, and one of the things is that it's a process. First, you learn the basics of the language, and you tend to write you know Ruby or whatever it is you're learning. And it looks exactly like the old thing that you did. So if you're a Java programmer, your first Ruby programs tend to look exactly like their um, Java equivalents. It's not that you're evil. It's not that you're stupid. It's not that you don't care. It's just part of the learning process. And if you teach enough people Ruby, you see they go through these stages. And, you know, not everyone goes through the same stages. And some people are quicker and some people are slower. Some people just have their own things. But in 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 the mean, there's there's stages you go through, and it's important to sort of sort of you find someone and they're they're doing X and it isn't particularly idiomatic. It's it's you know you need to sort of figure out where are they in the process of learning and help them get to the to the next level. Now, in my in my actual real you know flesh and blood life life, am I always that patient and everything? Anybody who knows me would tell you no. I'm. Uh, not as patient as I should be, but I think that that's the kind of thing we need to go th- to go through. Is is and so um, you know the people who need it won't read a four hundred page book. I, I'm not sure. Sure, I think maybe the people who need it maybe they don't know that they're not really doing the best job they could. Maybe the people who really need this advice. I mean, I, I one of the reasons I wrote Eloquent Ruby is that there was all this knowledge that folks like you and me, we all knew that wasn't written down anywhere. So if you come to, um, I don't know, if you get on that big sailing ship and somebody's telling you all about the ropes or whatever they're called, then you say, oh, where can I learn about this? And they're like, sorry, you're out of luck. It's not written down anywhere. You would be frustrated. So, I mean, that was one of the motives for, for writing the book was um, to, to get this all written down. But you have to very few people want to do a bad job at anything. And most of the time when people are, are maybe defensive or don't want to change, it's, it's because you're kind of not approaching it right, or at least that's the way I choose to look at it. I want to kind of talk about that a little bit. Um, one of the things I did love about the book is uh, so many times uh, – it had me nodding along when you were saying, you know what, there's this and that, and uh, you, you'd be better off to avoid this, or uh, these things are very complicated, and uh, so I, I better just sit you down and explain to it. And I think that's... A- I just want to interject. 
I, I really like the one where he said, I will come and throw you out a window. That's me in my not so patient mode. <laughs> but I, I did love that. Like, there's so many things, like, people like me that have been in Ruby so long, you know, it's like, yep, I've run afoul of that and it bit me, you know, and then here's a discussion of it in eloquent ruby right you probably don't want to do this because sooner or later you get uh you get cheated by it you know and i love that um to give some examples uh the discussion of class variables is probably one of the best ones in any book ever uh well thank you show exactly what's wrong with ruby's class variables and why they're the devil's work i don't care what zen spider says um then uh, you had a really great uh, on the differences between Lambda, Proc, and Proc New. Uh, you know, you walk through all of those differences very well. Or oh, I, I did that with uh, I did that with the O'Reilly book that Matt's wrote open because I can never remember the difference between Proc and Lambda and Proc dot New. And you know, I, I it, it you sort of hit on my two fundamental frustrations. Uh, with Ruby, which I guess are not really that big, but it's the class variables and the names of those stupid methods. Right. And the, um, your discussion of equals, Ruby has like 50 different ways to say <laughs> equals, you know, and you kind of make sense of all of those. You know, well, actually, there's a reason there's all these different equals. And these are about hashing things. And these are about checking object equality. And, and I really thought that was uh, very nice to have, you know, all kind of coded down. And then the one I've never seen in uh, another Ruby book that I loved uh, was when you kind of got into blocks and how they are closures and they keep their, uh, you know, scope and you actually went into. So that can lead you to problems uh, that make it look like Ruby leaks memory, you know, of, mm -hmm. because you're holding on to these references and you're making Ruby keep track of all this stuff. And that's why, you know, we hear the complaint all the time that Ruby leaks memory and stuff like that. But it, Often mm -hmm. it's a matter of how we use Ruby, and I really loved having a discussion on that. So, so I, I I like that too. I'm I think that was awesome that you included that information. On the other hand, you you went in you know both feet for um, using the explicit code blocks rather than the implicit code blocks, and without any discussion of the performance impact of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's true, I did. Yeah, so, uh, anyway, just saying. It's yeah. a reflection of my idea, I, I say this all the time, is that when you start talking about performance, programmers lose their minds, okay? We are, are so focused on writing code that performs well that sometimes we just forget. So I, I will go out of my way, um, and particularly when I'm talking to programmers who are new to, to Ruby, which to, in some sense Eloquent Ruby was sort of aimed at, um, to not talk about performance because it, it's not that it's not important, but I think, I think we have our performance amplifier, our performance worry amplifier knob turned up to 11 way, way too often. So, so I plead guilty on that one. <laughs> I do want to cover one other thing I liked about the book that um, I really like the metaphors you found for explaining some things like um, your use of basically an around filter 
to explain how blocks are used to, you know, execute some code, you know, maybe before or after or both something. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I just, you know, it, when I think of that, I don't think of an around filter right off the bat. I mean, I, I realize that's a perfect use of it. That's true. But I think, you know, of, of lots of different things, but that's just not the first one that jumps to my mind. But then when I saw you explain it that way, I was like, wow, that was just a great way to explain how, how to make use of blocks. Actually, I think, I think, uh, 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 one of the books that I read, um, in doing research on eloquent Ruby was Kent Beck's, um, uh, what's it called? The, the small talk book. Is it patterns and small practices? Practice, you, practice patterns. Yes. And he talked a lot about the the execute around thing, and and really that whole discussion comes straight from him. So uh, you you need to go back in your time machine and congratulate him on that. <laughs> we did that. We we read that book and had him on the show, and we did congratulate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Him. I listened to that one. Yeah. But yeah, it, it, I I like the metaphors you found for um, uh, using them. I remember another one where you're saving the blocks and using them later. I can't remember the exact. Uh, way you did that, but uh, again, it was very well. Um, I, I know a lot of times I found like I thought you found the right way to show given concepts. I, well, thanks. I, I, I really like the uh, terminology of dragging along var scope variables. Oh yes, right. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's like they, kicking, they, kicking, and screaming. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's funny. Uh, a, a lot of that, I, I find myself, and I think probably lots of people do this. You know, I, I. I Try to spend a lot of time uh, talking to people who are new to Ruby. Um, it's kind of a fun thing that I do. In fact, I was doing it last night. And um, you, you find yourself, you know, you can struggle if you're writing. You can really struggle to try and find the right way to explain something. But it's funny. Sometimes if you just get in a group of people and they're asking you questions and you start explaining it, you will hear yourself say things. And you think, oh, yeah, that's that's good. I'm going to use that, even though it's sort of you saying it. Um, so I think I, I, I think you sort of have to credit the various people who have suffered through my my introduction to Ruby classes for some some of the metaphors in Eloquent Ruby, because a lot of them I just sort of heard myself saying and thought, oh, yeah, I'm going to use that. Um, the, the, the one thing I should add is early in the book, I said um, – that uh, good code is like a good joke. You shouldn't have to explain it in, in uh, um, talking about comments. And I, I just stuck that in there. That is like a, a programming thing that I've heard a hundred times, and it certainly is not original with me. And I was sort of mortified when uh, I've, I think I've been quoted about a thousand times on Twitter with that. And every time it makes sort of makes my teeth hurt because I feel like I've plagiarized it from some unknown person. But it's sort of like if you say to be or not to be, you don't put a footnote and say Shakespeare, you know, uh, Hamlet, right? You just assume that everybody's going to know that. And that. so I, I want to proclaim here uh, for the about the 25th time that that is not original to me. I did not make that up. We'll have to retweet that. I'll, I'll yep. go ahead and put that out there and and, and basically say it, it wasn't Russ. You know, yes. as, as yep. the Some, someone, yeah, good, <laughs> like a good joke, not Russ Olson. Yes. Yeah, 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 Russ. Thanks for explaining that. Yeah, it, it, it reminds me of last night. I was at a users group meeting, and um, 
the guy who was running the the show, he, his name's Brandon, and um, he was t- looking for volunteers for the next users group meeting to talk about different topics. And the first guy to volunteer, his name was Brandon also. So he gets up there and he writes on the board and he's making this list for his own benefit. And he writes up there, <laughs> Brandon, not me. Yes. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, your self-reference is broken. But nice. anyway, um, we need to get into the picks. Uh, we're probably going to go over our hour anyway. But uh, I just want to thank Russ for coming onto the podcast again. And no, for it's writing, been my pleasure. And for writing such a super book because I found it very simple to follow along. Um, I mean, some of the stuff, a lot of the stuff I, I, I knew just because I've been programming Ruby for a while. But um, there are so many little tidbits that you pick up in that that I just really, really appreciated. So, um, yeah, well, thank thanks you. for coming. I agree. It's a great book. Thank you. All right. So uh, as far as the picks go, let's uh, – Let's just go in alphabetical order, and I guess that's Avdi first. All right. Well, my first pick. Uh, let me let me preface it by saying anybody that follows me on Twitter knows that I am a distributed revision control system hipster. Uh, I kind of I really prefer the the user interfaces of some of the more obscure DVCSs like Darks to uh, Git's mishmash of a of a UI. Um, so you'll often see me, um, complaining about Git from time to time. Uh, and I I think if, if you're going to be forced to use Git and to really learn how to use Git well, uh, you might as well be entertained, uh, while you're doing it. And to that end, I want to recommend something called Think Like a Git, which is this wonderful website, which is basically a sort of the a book or a, the beginnings of a book you could say on using git and it is written in a style that just i mean literally has me l- laughing out loud in my office as i read through it it's, it has this wonderful section that starts git makes more sense when you understand x and then it goes through all the various metaphors that people have used to try to explain git and it's just um it's just wonderful so uh think dash like dash a dash git dot net check it out um something else that i'm not even sure what to call it uh but something that i've been doing for a while that i i will pick out um for for several months uh i and a couple of friends of mine uh have been doing daily stand-up meet daily remote stand-up meetings and we're not on the same team together uh, one of them I used to work with, um, but I haven't I haven't worked with him um, for a while. Uh, but and, but we're all people that work from home. We're all people that that are often working sort of on our own or or a little disconnected from other people. We're not working in an office, and we just we have a daily stand up on now we do it on on Google Hangouts where we talk about you know what we're what we're working on in general and and you know what interesting new things we've learned and stuff like that. And I just want to sort of put that out there as an idea. You know, if you are in the situation where you are a, a developer who is working a little bit in in a in a kind of an isolated fashion or maybe you work at an office but it's not the sort of place that has fun daily stand-ups or something like that, um see if there are some people out there um who will who will do, you know, a daily stand-up with you even though you're not all in the same team together, 
you'll probably find find people that are willing to do it. And, and it, it's really a, it's just a great uh, way to get a little socialization, to, to learn a few new things and uh, and just for general moral support. I, I love that idea. I, I remember uh, when working at home and telecommuting was becoming pretty popular in, in the, I guess, the 90s and the early early aughts or noughties, uh, that the um, the big thing was the uh, telecommuters lunch club where you'd go out and have lunch with people who worked at home in your neighborhood so that you weren't like a shut in all day. But this sounds more useful. So cool. <laughs> Yeah, socialization would probably give you a little more polish. I think that's my problem. Anyway, um, uh, alphabetically, I guess I'm next. Um, one thing that I tried lately, and this isn't a code pick, it's uh, it, there's a website called emails, e meals with a Z instead of an S dot com. And uh, really, the deal was is we, my, my wife wasn't feeling well for a while. And so when dinner time rolled around, basically what would happen was. Um, I'd be like, okay, where do you want me to go to get dinner? And uh, it was just, you know, because it was a hassle and I didn't know what to make and I didn't know if we had what we needed to make it. And the cool thing with this website is that uh, it gives you a meal plan for the whole week and it gives you a shopping list. And so you just print the thing out, take the shopping list to the store, do all your shopping, and then you have everything you need. And uh, the meals are actually pretty good. So um, I've, I've been doing it for uh, a few days and, you know, so far it's worked out real well. So uh, that's my first pick. And um, my second pick is uh, something that I think a lot of uh, people kind of take for granted, but uh, it really makes a big difference, and that is just having a good, um, a good word processor's uh, uh, spreadsheet program. And uh, I have uh, the Mac iWork uh, stuff. Um, OpenOffice seems to work all right as well. But uh, I, I got it just because I, I liked it. Keynote seems to have some good polish to it and stuff. And um, basically, I, I'm using it a lot more because uh, I've been doing estimates uh, for potential clients, you know, to let them know, you know, here's about how long I think it'll take and here's, here's roughly what it'll cost in the best case and worst case scenarios. And um, so filling it in in the, in the spreadsheet or, you know, putting it into a tool like Pivotal Tracker and then, and then having that figured out. But then being able to export it to a spreadsheet where you can then, you know, have them visualize how, how long it's going to take for the different features that they've got and, and things like that is just really, really handy. And so uh, anyway, th those are my picks. Um, we'll go ahead and let uh, James go next. Okay, so I've been uh, picking a bunch of like tools and stuff lately, so... I thought I would uh, have a little more fun this time. Uh, first, though, a, a kind of, uh, you know, uh, sort of on topic pick before I have some fun. Um, the uh, Peter Cooper turned me on to this video uh, screencast on TechPub uh, called The Art of Speaking. And it's, uh, it's about Scott Hanselman, who I, I didn't know who that was, but I guess he's a big speaker in the uh, C-sharp world and uh, .NET and stuff like that. Uh, anyways, it's a neat video where they, uh, the team went out and just uh, kind of gave them this challenge. They're like, hey, we're going to give you 90 minutes to learn CoffeeScript and then give us a 15-minute talk about it. Um, and, and basically, they, they film him as he's doing this. 
and you get to follow his thought processes, and it's pretty interesting uh, from how he, you know, puts together a talk, or what he thinks, you know, about slides, what, you know, just hearing the thoughts that are coming through his head, you know, that are, you know, about why he's doing the things he's doing, and what examples he's looking at, and why, uh, I found that really useful. So, if you do speak at conferences, um, you would probably enjoy uh, this video. Uh, it's worth a watch. It's like an uh, hour and 20 minutes, uh, but you see him prepping and then uh, give his presentation. So uh, pretty good stuff there. Okay, and now back to vacation mode. Um, I I'm getting more adventurous in music the older I get. Uh, so I'm trying, you know, uh, different things. So I thought I would just uh, name three albums that, you know, maybe not everybody knows and, and uh, I, I enjoy. Um, so uh, the first one is uh, the Green Day Bluegrass Tribute. I imagine we all know who Green Day is, but uh, there's a tribute album uh, that's in bluegrass. It redoes a bunch of Green Day's famous songs, you know, American Idiot and stuff like that in, in bluegrass. Uh, and it's really great. Uh, I, you know, thought that was kind of weird when I first... Uh, heard of it, but uh, after listening to it, I really enjoy it. So uh, that's kind of an unusual album that I like. Uh, another one, um, I, I do listen to uh, classical and some different variations of classical from time to time, uh, but one that's pretty cool I found uh, semi-recently is um, uh, Zoe Keating. She's a cellist, um, but she'll often do uh, very modern things, like she'll play something and then loop it back on herself while she's playing other things. So even though she's just like an individual cellist, she can kind of seem to be, you know, an entire band all by herself. Uh, and a great album of hers is One Cello Times 16, Natoma is the name of it. Um, and that uh, album is, I, I find it makes pretty good programming music. And it's kind of got these legion marches in it and stuff and uh, uh, pretty good stuff I really enjoy listening to while coding. Uh, so that's my second recommendation. And then my third, but definitely not least, um, if you're any kind of a geek uh, and you enjoy, you know, things like Firefly, Battlestar Galactica, or anything like that, you absolutely must have Marion Call's Gotta Fly album, uh, which is basically a tribute to all those things. Star Wars, Lord of the Rings. Uh, and I know that probably sounds incredibly hokey, a music album tribute, to those things, but you won't be laughing after you listen to them. It's absolutely excellent music. So I'm recommending those albums. People should go listen to them and check them out. Awesome. Thanks, James. Um, Josh. Okay. Uh, so my pick is not Textmate 2. <laughs> sorry. <I'm> sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a blind Textmate 2. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I've been looking at Sublime Text. It's not bad. Um, okay, but but I actually do have a a, a bit of a, a tool pick here, and it's and it's not one tool. It's a flow of tools. So I'm going to talk about three tools. So the first is uh, Balsamic Mockups, and uh, I've been using the desktop app. We tried the uh, the hosted web, uh, web thing, my Balsamic, and uh, that didn't seem to work as well for us for our team. But the uh, the desktop Balsamic, it's nice. It's kind of a low. If people haven't used it, it's a low fidelity uh, tool for mocking up UIs. Uh, it's pretty well uh, suited for doing web interfaces, and 
and it's nice because it looks like you sketched it in your hand so you don't get too attached to like polishing pixels when you're really just trying to shake out the structure of your uh, of your page so uh, so we've been doing that and that but the the thing that really uh, we started doing last week that just made everything click was you put together stuff in balsamic and then we would use sketch which is um, this cute little uh, uh, graphics editor that can really easily do screen grabs and then you can mark things up and annotate them uh, you know you know draw circles around them or you know arrows and you know labels and it's re- so it's really good for that kind of annotation of of uh, screen grabs so but the cool thing about it is that when you have something you don't even have to save stuff from sketch at all there's a drag handle at the bottom of the window and you can just take that so you can you have a you have a design that you've mocked up in balsamic and then you use use the the hotkey in sketch to just grab it and then you can type one or two like draw some big arrows or circle things which is the thing that you really need to focus on in a story that you're about to work on and just grab the drag handle at the bottom of the screen it says drag me or at the bottom of the window, and just drag it to a story and pivotal tracker, and it and it just uploads the that um, that image to your story as an attachment. So it it literally just takes like a couple like two or three seconds to be able to go from balsamic to your pivotal tracker story, and you have your attachment there, and you can see what the hell's going on with your story that you need to make. And if it if it and then if you want to add a little annotation when you're in Sketch, you can do that. It's only a couple more seconds. So we've we've just been doing that workflow lately, and it's really nice, and it's made working on stories so much easier for us. So, and that's all I got this week. Cool. I, I'm probably going to start using that with some of my subcontractors because yeah, sounds yeah, handy. Uh, but by the way, Sketch is now they got bought by Evernote, so it's now part of the Evernote package. Uh, EverSketch. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sketch yeah, and I actually yeah. I started using I started using that on my my Android tablet, the Evernote with the with the Sketch integration, and uh, and that's really nice actually because you can you know you can just open an image up in from Evernote into Sketch and then and then doodle around on it with your finger. Nice. Yeah, I recommended you know Evernote last week, and and uh, Josh gave me the you got to go listen to this uh, podcast where they talked about it for like an hour and uh, hour and twenty minutes. Yeah, or the power users. Yeah, yeah, I went and listened to that and. Wow, that gave me like a ton of things I didn't uh, think about using it for. So yeah, I've been using it even more. Nice. All right, Russ, what are your picks? Uh, well, I've been uh, get, getting ready for the show. I was thinking a lot about Eloquent Ruby and um, the whole process of sort of bringing uh, people into the Ruby community. And so my, I got a couple of other ones, but my my fundamental pick is something I did last night, which is I went out and uh, we have in Northern Virginia here, we have a Tuesday night kind of meet up with uh, a couple people from the Ruby community and a bunch of people who basically know nothing about Ruby or Rails. Some of them are programmers. Some of them are coming in, into, you know, this is their first programming experience. So my pick is to get out with actual human beings in person who uh, are trying to learn Ruby because you'll do some good for the community. You'll spread the love around, but what you will get back is this feeling of excitement and joy 
that you haven't felt since you learned Ruby. Um, and so it, it, it's a really remarkable experience, and I recommend it for for every everyone. Um, and you, you can actually sort of do the the community some some good. Um, I got a tool, which is um, uh, and and perhaps this is old hat, but there's a family of editors um, that that was started by uh, one called Write Room, which is basically it turns your you know twelve hundred dollar um, MacBook Air or whatever computer you're using into a fifty dollar typewriter that you can get off of eBay. Um, Write Room is a, a very bare bones editor that takes over your full screen, kind of gives you a black background. You just start typing and all you see is your text. And it is the greatest thing for getting rid of all the distractions, your email, your Twitter, your everything else. You're just writing. And uh, it's probably not for everyone, but for me, it was the greatest boon to, to actually getting writing done that uh, I'm, I'm not I think I probably uh, would still be writing eloquent Ruby if it were not for the sort of take over the whole computer editors. And since we were talking about music, my my last thing is anything on the ukulele. All right. That <laughs> that just reminds me of when we had uh, Jim Wyrick on the show because he picked ukuleles and gave us a whole bunch of resources for that. There you go. Well, I refer you back to that then. Yeah. But yeah, it, it sound, it, it's really interesting to me how many uh, musicians there are in the community out there. Yeah, I, I think I, I realize we're already sort of going over our time, but maybe my last word is uh, we're not as boring as, as a profession programmers. We're not as boring as our books make us out to be. And I think that uh, if our books on average – were as fun and as exciting as and excited as the people were, our books would be a lot better. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Am I the only person on this uh, this episode that hasn't published a book? Oh, geez. You're behind, Chuck. <sighs> yeah, I'm an unpu- unpublished swine. Speaking of books, um, so next month we've been discussing which book to do, and, you know, we've had – uh, a couple of books, Land of Lisp. We've got what is it, Refactoring in Ruby, um, suggested, but we we really haven't zeroed in on the book that we want to do. So what we're looking for is some feedback uh, from you, the listener, on which book we should cover next month. So uh, between now and Christmas, um, go ahead and either leave a comment on the on RubyRogues.com. Just go ahead and do it on episode thirty-three. Um, or you can, uh, you know, Twitter or whatever, you know, whatever you, uh, want to use to, to let us know which book we should pick. And then, um, after Christmas, we will pick a book and, uh, we'll let you know what that is and we'll review it in January. Sounds awesome. All right. I think that's it.